I'd like to welcome you all to Ananda. My name is Ananta. This is Maria. We have guests at the Expanding Light that are in a How to Meditate course and uh, other courses. So to all of you, we're very glad you could join us this morning. Today's reading is from Rays of the One Light, and this is the week entitled The Eternal Now. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. When will I find God? Many devotees have asked this question. Because worldly goals require time, usually, for their fulfillment, we imagine time to be a factor on the spiritual path. And so it is, but only because we think it is. God is as much with us now as he will ever be. It is not he who needs to come to us. We need to come to him. And that process of coming is a matter of transforming our self-perception. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 4, Jesus Christ says, Say ye not there are four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look unto the fields. They are white already to the harvest. There's a practical teaching in these words apart from their statement that we have God already and have only to realize that truth. Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes and look. To hold the eyes uplifted is the best position for meditation. For the seat of superconsciousness lies at a point midway between the eyebrows in the frontal lobe of the brain just behind that point. This point is known also as the Christ center. By lifting up your eyes and concentrating there, you will find it easier to enter the state of ecstasy. That is why saints in every religion have often been observed during states of deep inner communion with their eyes uplifted, focused on the inner light, white, as Jesus said, already to harvest. The Bhagavad Gita goes further into the meditative teaching. In the sixth chapter, it states, holding the spine firm, the neck and head erect and motionless, let the yogi focus his eyes at the starting place of the nose, the point between the eyebrows. Let not his gaze roam elsewhere. In meditation, tell yourself, I have him already. I am alive forever in the divine light. Thus, through the Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh, oh. I'd like to read from Yogananda's Whispers from Eternity. And this is entitled, Let Me Feel That Thou and I Are One. When the sparks of cosmic creation flew from under thy crucible of love, I danced with all the lights that heralded the coming of a myriad worlds. I am a little spark of thy joyous cosmic fire. O thou son of life, as thy nectar poured into the little cups of human minds 
filled with molten liquid of vital sparks. They thought to contain thy golden infinity in the smallness of their human feelings. In each fragile undulating mirror of human flesh, I see reflected thy restless dance of omnipresent power. In the lambent waters of life, I behold thy ever steady almighty life. Teach me Christ-like by the power of concentration to still the restless storms of desire raging on the lake of my mind. Stilling those waters, I lovingly behold thy unruffled face of cosmic stillness. Cause the little wave of my life to subside, that thy consciousness in me spread out to become thine own vastness. Let me feel my heart throbbing in thy breast, my feet moving with thy energy, thy breath breathing through mine, thy energy actively moving my arms, thy thoughts weaving all the thoughts in my brain. When I cry, Thy soft sigh within me wakens me to thy joy. In thy playfulness, little bubble visions of thy creation float dancingly in the chamber of my dreams, which manifest in my sleep of delusion. Thy meteoric will courses through the skies of my own will power, my own willpower. Make me feel that it is thou who art I. O make me thyself, that I behold my little bubble of self ever floating in thee. Again, I'd like to welcome you all and thank you, those viewing online and those who are gathered here today for bringing and sharing your devotion in this day and in this service. These words, the eternal now, they seem a paradox. It's, it's difficult, very difficult to get our minds around what that's really about. I was reading a passage, Yogananda said, there is no evolution there is no change. There is no progress. Everything is taking place in this present moment. In God's consciousness, there is just one reality. What do you do with that? I was recalling a story. A student of Ramana Maharshi's went to visit him in South India. and She came from England. And she was sharing with him the long and arduous journey of getting there and of her travels. And he simply said, you haven't moved at all. (laughs) (laughs) The masters live in this consciousness, which is not impossible to fathom, but certainly challenging to fathom. They live consciousness in a reality outside of time and space. And if we, if we understand, if the eternal now means to us the dimension of spirit, then we can start, start to get a hold 
on what is this eternal now? What is this state of consciousness in which the masters reside? They need not travel the globe in a plane to experience another culture, to know another language. They need not have a verbal conversation with us to know our hearts and our souls. There is no dimension of time and space in that consciousness. That's really something to marvel at and try to understand. Yogananda would oftentimes use the analogy of a bottle floating upon the cosmic sea, that bottle representing the, that manifestation of creation, which is the physical world. And that bottle within another bottle. And that second bottle manifesting that aspect of creation, which is the astral world. And those two bottles, one within the other, inside yet a third bottle. That bottle representing that manifestation of the causal world. And this bottle floating and being tossed on the cosmic sea, on the waves of the cosmic sea. And to step out of dimension. You know, time and space are probably the greatest creations of Maya. They are so real to us. Imagine a world without time and space. It's mind-boggling. We measure everything by time. I always laugh at those people who sometimes I get to work with them doing God's work. They don't wear watches. Maybe they're anti-watch, but they always want to know what time it is. <laughs> is it time for my break? Is it time for lunch? <laughs> the time for sadhana? So, you know, it's hard to imagine that universe without these concepts, uh, but they are what make Maya all that it is. And we have to break that bottle. We have to break those bottles of delusion to not be just that wave on the cosmic sea, but to be one with the cosmic sea, to merge with that ocean of infinite consciousness and reside in that reality that the masters reside in all of the time. Yogananda, he uh, would oftentimes use the words, uh, center everywhere, circumference nowhere. You know, again, mind-boggling terms, but in reality, very convenient, very practical Imagine being in your center when life throws you a curve ball, when some big test lands in your lap. Imagine being in your center and holding on to that expanded consciousness. What a relief, because most times we're just sent in this torrential river, you know, that just takes us willy-nilly. We lose all sense of orientation, of rightness, hopefully not dharma, but... Confusion reigns, and it just it can be a big mess. But center everywhere, circumference nowhere, to have that expanded sense of vision, and yet always be in the self, no matter what happens. And so it is our devotion, it is our spiritual practice that helps to dissolve these barriers, to annihilate their space and time annihilators. That's what the practice of yoga is. That's what the practice of meditation is. That's what devotion is. It dissolves these seeming parameters, this rigidity 
of the universe in which we walk and live and serve. And it brings us more into that unitive state of consciousness. And so I wanted to talk about these different ways in which we can break down, if you will, and annihilate space and time and get into that understanding of, of spirit, the dimension of spirit. What is that like? And how does that consciousness play out in our daily lives? Master would oftentimes recommend reading and bathing in his poem, Samadhi. He said he tried to capture the essence of that state of consciousness. And as it begins, the whole, really the whole poem in its entirety, but it talks about the dissolution of time and space, vanished the veils of light and shade upon the screen of duality, all life's opposites, love, hate, health, disease, life, death, perished these false shadows. And that's what it describes as the breakdown of the physical universe as we know it, as we've become involved with, that is a very powerful veil to those subtler vibrations. Past, present, future, no more for me, but ever-present, all-flowing I, I everywhere. I remember one time in a meditation in seclusion, I, I was a few days into my seclusion, And I was getting a little frustrated because I'd sort of hit the wall a little bit. And I could see my mind going elsewhere than where it needed to be. And why, Divine Mother, why is this happening? Why am I drawn in to remembrance of this particular situation yet again? You know, and I was frustrated. It was assuming major importance, certainly enough to redirect my attention away from meditation. Why is this happening? You know, I was getting more than frustrated. And I'd set aside this time to be in seclusion, to be in with God. I'd done the right thing, so to speak. And from my perspective, it was going nowhere. And why is this happening? And it was just so clear. It was, well, if you go there, then that's the reality you're going to experience. Pretty simple. But... Not that easy to get over that hurdle. But when we look to the past, when we look to the future, if that's where we want to go, if that's where we spend our, want to spend our time, then that's what our reality is going to be. We can worry about the future. We can plan for the future. We can look at the past. We can shuffle everything around and make it different and rewrite history for ourselves. You know, whatever it is, next time I'll do it better. I mean, that's good. But present, past, future, no more for me. That's what that state of consciousness is about. It doesn't mean we don't learn from those experiences, that we don't glean valuable lessons, but we've got to make the attempt to associate with that vibration of consciousness, which Yogananda talks about in that poem. I remember when Ananta and I, uh, early on when we came to Sacramento, we were the colony leaders there for a period of time, And this was very early on, and this man came to the center before we had our our mandir. We were over in, um, we had a storefront over in Carmichael. And he came storming in one day, and he said, I want samadhi. I was like, okay. All right, so 
what Yogananda's teachings, we have these different meditation techniques. We have Kriya Yoga. I go on to explain, you know, kind of the process. And he's like, no, I want samadhi. And why do I have to go through this process? I mean, he wasn't Looney Tunes. He wasn't, a, he wasn't really off or anything. He just, this was just his take on it. I want it. Give it to me now. So... <clears throat> So I, you know, why do I have to go through this process? And in that, in, that ex, uh, in that expression, he also shared that he had been in India for a time. And he said, in India, they touch you and you go into samadhi. I said, okay, and why is it you left India? <laughs> and, and he said, he actually said, well, they kicked me out of the ashram. <laughs> Say okay, let's let's look at this. <laughs> They've kicked you out of the ashram, okay. So, but you know, Yogananda said that we have to prepare. We have to prepare our consciousness to receive the liberating shock of omnipresence. It's not a bad kind of shock. It's just that that state of expanded awareness, the eternal now, it is vast. It is huge. And if we're going to just pick at it with our little minds, no entry. We've got to associate with that vibration, read about that vibration through samadhi, be inspired by that poem, be inspired by Yogananda's consciousness that comes through that poem, and let it change you. Let it start to excite you about that journey, that process. Let it inspire you to meditate to go deeper in meditation, to try to go into that light, to try to feel the company of the great ones helping you and aiding that process. And then, as it says in the reading, uh, the second thing that I, point that I wanted to talk about, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Yogananda said the more that we can live in that consciousness, our attention focused here at the spiritual eye, again, very practical you know just put our attention there at the center of our being at the center of things all things all creation again in samadhi you know it talks about being one with everything one with everyone how can we know that how can we experience that unless we're looking through this eye that has clarity that has real sight And so he says, the more we can focus our concentration there all the time, the more we can accelerate our spiritual growth. He actually says, the more we can hasten the experience of ecstasy. And again, that simple exercise, too, is very, very practical. It's not just the esoteric. You know, it's it's everyday life. When Kriyananda was first with his guru, Yogananda, he, he shares in his book, uh, autobiography, The Path, he says, I found myself getting into a mood, and my energy was just plummeting fast. And I addressed my mental citizens, is this the way you want to be? Is this the experience you're happy with? And there was this resounding, you know, in his soul, no. And he said, well then, concentrate here. He remembered Yogananda's words, Yogananda His guru had said, whenever you feel your energy falling, place it here deliberately and with intense willpower and concentration. And it will dispel that 
lower energy. It will let the energy rise. It will uplift you. And he did that within five minutes. Gone. Gone. His consciousness had completely changed by that simple exercise. He just sat there in concentration and meditation just five minutes. And then in our lives, again, a very practical practical application of this truth of the eternal now, that this is our reality, to refer everything to that vibration within us, which is the Om. We are made of that vibration. When you're out walking, you know, around here and you're surrounded by nature, you hear the beautiful wind through the trees or the gentle rain that we're all hoping we're going to get. But at any time, try to feel that vibration through your body, through the very blood that's coursing through your veins, through your energy, through your silence, through your voice, everything. Try to tune into that vibration animating the divine light and the divine life within you. Swamiji said when he would write music, when he would you know, write some, uh, the music that, we, that he has composed, he said he would hear the notes and he would always reference them to that vibration of Om, which is spirit. It was his way, but it is, it's, it's really, it's, it's a universal way of getting at what is true, what is real, to reference that vibration. In other words, to feel what you're doing, what you're thinking, that note in the music as he did, feel it alongside that vibration of Om. Feel it blending with that vibration. And if it doesn't, listen to that. Listen to that, because maybe it's not the right thing. You know, getting it right isn't a mental exercise. It's an exercise in attunement. I remember years ago when our work was starting in India, and I went for a few weeks to try and be of some help. We had just been there barely a year by that time. And I didn't have any agenda. I wasn't trying to do this or that. It was just what's needed. So at the time, we were trying to figure out, as Ananda in India, what's going to work? How do we communicate with people about Ananda, about Master's teachings? How do we communicate with them about these classes in meditation, Kriya Yoga? And Daya, Daya and Keshava, who are members of Ananda, they've been in India now for 10 years already. And Daya said, well, in India, what we're told works, you know, there. We know it doesn't work here anymore. (laughs) But what we think works here and what the Indians are telling us works is that if we set up a table uh, in the marketplace or at the mall and have our books and literature and share these that you know, we'll make connections with people. We can let them know. We can sell the books. We can sign them up for classes, all of this. So she gives me an Indian buddy to go out with, a, a man, so I'm not just the, you know, foreigner on the street by myself. And we are to go into Delhi every day and set up this book table. Well, this is a, it was not a straightforward process, as I found out very early in the going. We would start out at about 10 and 
head in there. And at that time, the flyways weren't up then. You know, they're, they're equivalent to the freeway. It was a very long trek. It could easily take three hours. We could be stopped at the pay border crossing until the right amount of money was handed over or, what, or the right papers were presented or the right calls were made. So, you know, we're way into the day and we get to Delhi. We've been approved for a particular street corner or a particular mall. And we get there only to get set up and to be told that we cannot be there. And this truly would happen, you know, once, twice, three times throughout the day. We would be moved or sent to someone else to talk to for approval. Quite a, quite a system there moving through those people. And everyone, of course, was the person to talk to. And sometimes that meant just sitting down in their shops, having tea, telling them who we are, what we're doing, so we could easily get set up around, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> as far as Indians were concerned, that was okay, because they're 10 or 11 as everyone's out on the street. But for me, that's, you're pushing it. So day after day, this one day, kind of near the end of my stay there, and about at the end of my level of willingness, I have to say. (laughs) And I found myself holding the thought, Divine Mother, get me out of here. (laughs) That kind of became my mantra. I I think I was suffering from dehydration. It was really hot. You're fully clothed. It's a long day, a long event. So I'm, get me out of here, Divine Mother. And pretty shortly after that, a call comes and it's from Swami. And he says, what are you doing in Delhi? Get back here. We're going out to dinner. I want you here. I guess it's no easy deal. So somehow we got back in an amazingly short amount of time. But I came in and I scooted myself around the table where they were all sitting and just about to sit down next to Swami. I hadn't even sat down. And he looked at me, got my attention, and he said, I hope that you miss us as much as we'll miss you. And I just... I mean, he knew. He he evidently was aware of my mantra. And it just really, I was just totally exposed. So, and very grateful. I was very grateful because, you know, we, in this world, we just, we get involved in time, we get involved in space, and we step out, you know, of the eternal now. We step out of that consciousness. We step out of companionship with that consciousness. And we get into this thing that, wow, my body is a reality. I'm tired. I'm hot. I'm dehydrated. There's all these people around here. They're really not interested. And get me out of here, Divine Mother. So, you know, I was, I was very grateful for that. And uh, it's just, you know, it's again just staying within that center of Om and continually re- uh Retreating to that, I don't mean retreat in a contractive sense, much rather in an expanded sense, but being in that vibration. When one of Yogananda's disciples, Dr. Lewis, many of you will know this story, he was out on a boat on the East Coast, and water was very calm, he was with friends, they were having a great day, and out of nowhere, as oftentimes happens there, I'm told, I'm not experienced myself on the east coast but this incredible squall came up and just was you know horrific and furious and he really felt this is it 
And he hunkered down in the boat and he remembered Yogananda's words. Yogananda said, when you are an Om, nothing can touch you. You know, Om being that eternal now. When you are in that vibration, doesn't matter what age you live in, doesn't matter what time you live in, you know, what your circumstance is, what your attributes are, none of that has relevance in that now. And that now is everything. It's your identity, your reality as a child of God. And so he started to chant Om, and instantly the water calmed. And when he got home, Yogananda called him. And Yogananda said, you came near getting wet, didn't you, doctor? (laughs) Yogananda heard him. He heard him in that vibration. His disciple, all of his disciples, all of us are heard and have reality in that vibration. It's incredible. And and just the, the last point is that of devotion, again, the annihilator of space and time. It's all about devotion. There's a wonderful story that Ramakrishna tells. And the stage is set, and Lord Krishna is on one side of the stage and just doing what the Lord does, <laughs> all that the Lord does. And there's a divider in the center of the stage. And on the other side come in the gopis. These are the devotees of Krishna. And they come in and they sing and they chant and they dance and they're calling the Lord's name. And this goes on for some time. And Krishna's there ignoring them, it seems like, just doing his, you know, dance of creation, all that the Lord does, just minding his own business there. And eventually the gopis depart. And then after a while, the stage is empty, on the other side, in comes Radha. And this is Krishna's greatest devotee. And she comes in and she sits down, has just sat down and just and says, Oh, Krishna. And immediately Krishna runs to the other side of the stage. What is it, Radha? What do you need? What can I do for you? Her devotion knows no bounds in time or space, because there's no identification with the little self and the little problems, but just that inner knowing in the Om that I am a child of God. God loves me for exactly who I am. And God through me can make a difference. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow. And I have worth and I have value because I live in God. And that's all we need to know. And that devotion, again, as I said, being close to that vibration, that consciousness of what samadhi is, keeping our eyes elevated, referencing the om, practicing devotion. These, these are four of many things, but they break down that mayak thought of separation. And they will help us to manifest that truth. As Yogananda said, the time for knowing God has come. The time is now. And that experience of the eternal now is ours fully in the dimension of spirit as we know it within our own selves.